Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I've got a little bit of a different podcast for you today. This one is way away from clinical medicine and is all about education. I got one of my mentors locally, Dr. Jana Corral, who's a fantastic educator, and she's going to come on and give us an overview of the current state of medical education, as well as some tips on making your education more engaging or more sticky. How do you make sure that your learners are coming out of their sessions with you and actually remember? Bring the things that you're teaching. As usual, I'm going to get out of the way and let Dr. Corral introduce herself. Hi, I'm Janet Corral, and I'm associate professor in the Department of Medicine here at the University of Colorado Denver and Chutes campus. I describe myself as a pedagogical troublemaker. I'm a PhD in educational technology who just loves perturbing ideas around how we teach and how we learn and how we educate here in higher education. Uh, and Janet happens to be a teacher and mentor of mine, and we, we wanted to get her on today to give us kind of a crash course in if you are a faculty member and you are wanting to make your teaching better, can we get a couple of quick tips for how to go about that when you're teaching on the fly? So right off the bat, can you give us maybe your top three for how to make your teaching better? Absolutely. What I tell every faculty member first is chunk your information. Don't think about your information as an alphabet that you have to pull apart put together into words and put together into paragraphs for people. Instead, what's the paragraph? What are your three to five key paragraphs or take-home messages you really want to get out there to the learners? The next thing is repeat yourself. So if you've got three to five messages, as you design your whole talk, think about how those messages build on each other sequentially or how they repeat. Because when you chunk and repeat, you are helping the learners consolidate information into their short-term and then long-term memory. And the last piece, ironically, is to always spit out your take-home message first and last. And hopefully on today's podcast, we're modeling that right now and modeling it at the end. And that's because the primacy and the recency effect tell us this. Whatever you hear first, you're going to remember best. And whatever you hear last you're going to remember best. So if we chunk to take-home messages, three to five points, repeat ourselves, and then at the end also say our three to five points, we've covered my three quick tips, chunk, repeat, primacy, and recency effect. So we could be need the answer. We'll do this Jeopardy style and sort of move to the question next. Um, so why why are we even talking about this? Is Are there any current deficiencies in the way we do medical education? Are there common threads for things that, that aren't working? Or can we end this podcast now and, and we're done because we're already perfect? <laughs> well, I think we're at this really pivotal time in health professions education where we're starting to see this trend, particularly in the lecture-based part of health professions programs that students are not showing up. Similarly, in the clinical teaching spaces, we're seeing more and more where learners of all levels are pulling out their cell phones and they're Googling or they're doing other things on their cell phones. So there's both the being able to retrieve information faster than someone might be able to recall it or just being distracted by our devices. And altogether, this puts us as faculty members in this what I call hinge generation. We are in charge of enculturing the newer generations of learners into traditions, but we also need to be disruptive. So for example, let's let's pick on traditional lecture. It's worked for a long time, but increasingly across med schools, we're seeing a trend where in a class of maybe 180, 200 students, a dozen to 20 students are showing up. 
So if you're preparing for this lecture as a lecturer, you're putting in six, 10 hours of prep time maybe. You're showing up only for a small number of students present. A large number of students might be listening at home if it's live broadcast or they're listening to it on playback later at double speed and jumping to the parts that they find of interest or they think relate back to the learning objectives. And I'll admit to being one of those. My second year of medical school, I attended maybe 15% of the required in-person lectures because they recorded them. I could listen to them that afternoon at twice speed, review what I needed to. And I felt like I, it, was a, it was a more efficient use of my time. I also have the attention span of about a six-year-old child. So uh, sitting through a lecture is difficult. Right, right. And you're not alone in this. And, you know, the conversations we hear with faculty are, man, I'm putting in a lot of time. Doesn't anybody care? And so I try and change the conversation to, yeah, people do care. People are listening, but they're listening back at double speed. So what's my role if I'm an educator? My role is to realize, huh, my expertise matters. So if I want the students to value my expertise and I want to value my time and my return on investment, I'm going to rethink that dynamic. So specifically looking at lecture, if I'm someone invited in the first two years of med school to speak about something that's pretty rare or pretty complex that the med students are not going to see, or maybe they're better off learning at uh, somewhere when they're on their clinical rotations or after their clinical rotations in a four-year med school, then maybe my first job is to have a constructive conversation with whomever's invited me to talk and say, look, is this really what you want me to talk about? Is this really how you want to use me as an educator? And if they say yes, okay, we've moved past firing myself <laughs> now into how can we make best use of my time and the student's time? So option number two might be, okay, let's make this an active learning session. And I'm not talking going wholesale flipped classroom. That takes also a lot of investment and a lot of administrative support to make happen. I'm talking, could I come in and repeat what other people have already taught but do it in a very interactive, engaging way, maybe with cases, maybe with questions. But I've carefully designed the session so it's valuable for the learners and myself, and I'm helping them because I'm repeating what they've already learned. <clears throat> Excuse me. I might go as far as then saying, you know, I'm not talking about doing a small group. I'm not talking about replacing other parts of the constructed curriculum. But door number three might be let's start partnering with the people who taught before me or who are going to teach after me. And let me be that hinge point where I'm going to make a big time investment to bring big reward for me and the learners. I'm going to, you know, maybe give them a quiz and find out what they know and what they don't know. So now we're kind of moving into flipped classroom territory or team-based learning territory, but not fully, not full hog, but we're just doing a bit of a needs assessment. What do the learners know at this point? How are they conceptualizing this content? Often, the way that uh, the first two years of a health professions program are designed right now, there's little space to stop and unpack how learners are putting the facts together. I'm not talking about small group where we go through a case. I'm talking about, you know, what do these 10% of learners in the room know? What do these 20% learners room know? How are they putting it together? So, like, students may understand that pH matters, and it's related somehow to how our kidneys function, how our lungs function, uh, you know, how our, our blood moves in the biochemistry of our blood. But gosh, are, are they really connecting the fact that if someone has, I don't know, acidosis and we're looking at, you know, respirate, 
Um, we're looking at excretion rates. Are they putting the whole picture together? So, you know, what about for those of us? So I, in my clinical job, uh, I work in an ER and we we teach all comers. You know, in most shifts, I will have a fellow and, and a resident and sometimes two of different levels and some med students. And not very often anymore am I in a traditional lecture style classroom. So I don't know what patients I'm going to have. I don't generally have opportunity to prepare for like, here's the thing I'm going to teach today because it, it depends a little bit on what's coming in. So do you have any strategies for how to address that? For sure. So definitely, this is the ultimate scenario of being an adaptive educator. What I always start with is a quick needs assessment. Who's got a question about this? Or if a learner has asked a question, I'll go, wow, okay, I heard that question, Jason. And I'm kind of thinking behind that question, this is how you're putting the puzzle pieces together. Is that how you're seeing it, Jason? And I wait for Jason to respond. And then I'm going to leverage the wisdom of the crowd, especially when we've got learners at, at different levels in their career. I love modeling for them this idea of community and that we all bring a preconceived notion, preconceived knowledge, experience to the table, literally sometimes, um, <laughs> or patient bedside. And let's leverage that when we're together. So I might turn to resident X and say, hey, Jason's thinking about this. You and I covered a patient yesterday, last week, et cetera. Do you want to hop in and share? And then I'm moving really to this role of the expert and the guide on the side that's involved when I need to be involved. I'm going to let them dialogue in front of everyone, and I'm going to jump in if they're factually wrong, if they're not covering enough detail, if they're going down rabbit trails they shouldn't be going down. I'm going to be that person that says, okay, you know, here's the ballpark. Let's stay within here. Let's get to the end goal. I'm also going to be the moderator who looks at the other people to see, look at their nonverbals. Are they getting it? But let's flip back to this idea of our learners have a lot of digital devices. A lot of faculty are telling me, hey, you know, I've got students who can look up stuff faster on Google than I can recall it or, you know, I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to search for it here. Let's leverage that at the bedside. Let's engage those learners. If those are the skills they're learning, let's engage it on two levels. One, the direct answer level. So you found it on Google? Great. That's the answer. But the other layer to that conversation is you found it on Google? Why didn't you pick five-minute consult or any of the other peer-reviewed resources we've got out there? Why didn't you pick some of the apps from our professional organizations that have these things summarized? So we're talking to them about the quality of the information and modeling that to them, which I think is super important, especially then as we talk with patients who bring in information off the internet. It's the same type of conversation, but we're helping our learners realize, you know, when you self-curate, this has an impact on the very patient lives we're taking care of. We can't just take it at, at surface value. But from there, once they found that fact, let's leverage it into the conversation and figure out, okay, none of us could recall that, you know, drug Y had contraintegration Q. So now that we know that, let's talk through this patient case together. I love it. And if you smart listeners out there were paying attention, you notice that, that Janet ran through all three of our tips there, and you can do it on the fly. You don't necessarily have to have planned out your entire in-the-moment teaching to be able to chunk the information and then review it with, with increasing complexity and then double-check at the end for conceptualization. So apart from competing for students' time and, and interest, I think there's been a lot of discussion about the – 
total sum of medical knowledge that's out there now compared to several decades ago or, or even, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, continues to, to grow exponentially. And so some of the traditional teaching methods don't seem to jive with that because there was a lot of memorize all of this and then you'll figure out how to piece it together later. So um, I'm wondering if you can sort of give us an overview of why does the old method of giving information out in a lecture with a lot of memorization not work anymore? Is there something that's different about learners? Is there something that's that's different about the way that we are teaching or have we all just gotten more sophisticated? <laughs> so I think there's two pieces underlying your question. One is the doubling time of information. The other piece is the attention span of our audience. So let me take the second part first. There's this great book called The Shallows. And in it, it has the hypothesis that we're getting dumber because the internet is making us dumber. <laughs> And they don't mean dumber as in less able to retain facts. But it's this idea that, you know, if you a decade ago you had asked me what your phone number was, I would have told you. And now I can't even remember, you know, what your email address is. I don't have to. My phone's got it all. The internet and our digital devices have encapsulated content for us. So we're using this world of being cyborgs where our digital devices are extending our cognition out into the devices. Because of that, we're not remembering as much information. The other piece with the internet is it's blasting stuff at us all the time. Apps are being designed increasingly with cognitive psychology principles based out of Vegas and the gambling industry. So you get that hit of juicy information on Facebook, you know, every seven seconds or every third profile that you look at. The social media companies are figuring out what we like looking at. So that is dumbing us down. The cognitive psychology studies that come behind that first tip I gave, chunking, go with the rule of seven. The rule of seven says five to nine pieces of information, seven plus or minus two, five to nine pieces of information. But when we repeat those experiments now, we're finding that it's really more like four pieces of information that people can handle. And the idea behind that is that the internet is flashing so much stuff at us, our attention span is smaller, we're focusing less and less on the content because we can find it elsewhere. Ergo, we only really can handle shorter amounts of information encapsulated to us rather than the five to nine. And when you're saying handle, you mean sort of in in whatever your your defined learning session is, sort of the the number of things that you can actually absorb and remember. Absolutely. And, you know, I... I talk to faculty a lot about this, and I often get faculty coming back at me with, you know, Janet, that, like, how do you know that even works? I know cognitive psychology says that's true, but how do you know that works? And I say, look, if two days from now you can't remember, chunk, repeat, and spit your information out at the start and at the end, then I'm a liar. (laughs) But let me put it another way. Many of us have gone to a talk with a really engaging speaker. They may talk for the whole hour. They may talk for two hours. You know, this could be a stand-up comedian, or this could just be a really great speaker in a lecture theater. Very few people can walk out of those events and within an hour, let alone 48 hours, remember every joke the comedian said or remember every great point the orator made. We're inspired or we're in a happy place, but we can't remember all the details. I'm not saying stand-up comedy needs to move to, you know, three jokes and then we're done. What I'm saying is as a teacher, think about how you're chunking into three to maybe five chunks of information and getting it out there. It doesn't mean we're reducing the complexity, but we just need to think through how do I take the complex, reduce it to a simple concept, 
But when I'm given time to talk about that simple concept, unpack the complexity for people. What I didn't fully answer in the previous question, mm -hmm. I said there were two things. I said there's the doubling time of information and there's this encapsulating of information and what our digital devices do to us. That doubling time of information used to be every seven years information is doubling. Now we're at every three years. And then when we look at big data and the amount of data that humanity is producing, it's described in words that most people don't even know. Like when we're at petabyte, people kind of look at us with glazed over eyes. So we're in this world where we can't possibly know everything. We don't yet have the capacity to mine all that data to figure out what's garbage and what is good. Right? Data scientist is a whole career of people who every day look at pots of data and figure out what's true and what's not. So when we take this idea of lots of information, needing to chunk stuff, and our devices finding information for us, this starts then perturbing the fundamental assumption of the faculty member as the most knowledgeable expert. And I think that's a piece we really start to need to emotionally and philosophically get around as faculty members, because the next piece of that is, shoot, why do students need to come to me? Couldn't they just look it up on the internet? I think we can start thinking through immediately some reactions. Is the information any good? How do you curate it well? Okay, so let's go that far. I taught the students how to find the information at in quality resources, and then I taught them how to curate it and disseminate it. All right, do they still need me? Oh yeah, because there's nothing out there helping them with the ball game, right. right? Healthcare is difficult. We're looking at how do you put the puzzle pieces together correctly to know that it's diagnosis X and not diagnosis X minus one or diagnosis Y. This is where we come in at the bedside. So that's why I say, hey, let the students look something up on their phones, tell us the fact, but we're going to help them put it together. We're back to the apprenticeship model that it's important our students, our learners of all levels spend time with us and spend time with each other, learning how to crosstalk across disciplines and also how to put the puzzle piece together correctly. And so you're getting at um, something that we, you and I have actually spoken about a lot is that that maybe as as teachers and educators, our role is no longer to be the best fact repository or exactly. the best knowledge transfer point. Uh, it's it's instead to help be a navigator or a or a co-pilot for for getting through all of that information and then putting it together at a little bit higher level, which is it's hard. It's, it's a lot easier to just spit out some facts and say, "Great, you're on your own. Go ahead and learn it." But it's right. it's harder to to put them together in a way that makes sense to people. Yeah. And you asked a great question. You said, you know, what's the end goal for someone in a lecture? What's the end goal for someone at bedside teaching? I'd say, you know, again, going back to that hinge generation concept, we're in a place where our job now as faculty members is to enculturate the next generation of learners that you are my colleague, you are my peer as we go through this journey. And each of the health professions is a team. We are a team together. We cannot take care of patients the same way that we used to. And if we're going to work together going forwards as a team, we've got to be open in our learning space to say, I know this. I don't know this. I see it this way. How do you see it? How do we reduce our communication errors? And I think it starts in these teaching moments. So wrapping that all up, can we get back to our three points where we've now told the entirety of the education world how to go and be better? Can we give it to them again? Absolutely. Uh, so if nothing else, you should come away from this podcast with 
chunk your information. Use that rule of seven, plus or minus two, but really three points. The second thing is repeat yourself. Take those chunks and make sure your messages repeat or repeat with increasing complexity. The third point is spit out your points. Tell us at the beginning, tell us at the end. Chunk, repeat, spit it out. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 